This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. Hey everybody, Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. I have here with me today a fascinating figure who I've been following for many years actually. Uh, this is Itai, I'm going to say Angel or Angel, but that's more the Latino pronunciation. What is it? What What is it? Angel? Angel. Yeah. It always just sounds so Angel. Okay, it's yeah. it's Angel, but whatever. We won't correct him right now. We don't want to make him uncomfortable. Itai Angel is a, uh, a formidable, formidable war correspondent, a war reporter, war journalist, whatever you want to call it. The dudes that have the testicles to go into the war zones and cover shit from the inside. Now, what I admire most about, we'll get to talk about this in a minute, is that he's Israeli, okay? And this dude here has gone into, can I, correct me if I'm wrong, Syria, Czech, Lebanon, Gaza, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran? No. No, whatever, not everybody can be perfect. Bosnia? No. Uh, Pakistan? Anything else left? I mean, Denmark doesn't count. What, what else, what other war zones have you been in? Chechnya, Chechnya. Congo, Rwanda, South Africa, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, Haiti. I mean, you really went in there. Now, how, um, when was that first spark that you said, let me go into a war-torn area? How old were you and what kind of brought you into it? Well, I, I became as a foreign affairs, I began as a foreign affairs editor uh, in the Israeli army radio station. Okay. I mean, people who are uh, not Israelis would find, you know, the word like Israeli army radio station as a military mouthpiece. Military, okay, like just propaganda for the military? Yeah, but actually it's, it sounds weird, but actually it's vice versa. I mean, the army establishment, you know, worked for, uh, you know, the abolishment of uh, the army radio station. It consists of very young people. Okay. You know, you have to be enlisted to the army when you are 18. Right, uh, right. Some of us get to uh, the army radio station. It's a very young and lively radio station. Okay, okay. So you were doing that. You were that. I was, I was a foreign affairs editor. So I was like in charge of uh, what is happening outside Israel, but I never went out, out right, of Israel. Right, you were just doing it by checking online or reading, reading other papers or something? Yeah, exactly. And paper is the thing because back, back then we didn't have any cables. Yeah. I, I, I used to listen to uh, BBC Short waves. Okay. Oh, 13, wow. 23. How old are you? Now? Yeah. 51. 51. So how yeah. old were you? So you were 20 then? Okay, so you were doing all that, but then at some point you realized, so you finished the Army, you were doing the radio thing. Yeah. And then at some point you realized, if I really want to be a serious reporter, I actually got to go into the field? Yeah. I, I got to tell you, it's been... Uh, sort of a process because at the beginning, you know, I admired, you know, the commentators, the pundits, you know, the people who are... The behind the desk the people, The people of wisdom. Right. And, uh, you know, the people who went out, you know, and doing field work, uh, right. we used to laugh at them. I remember the word for a correspondent in uh, Hebrew is katav. Okay. So we used to call them uh, ktavlav, which means like a doggy. Oh, wow. I mean, why would you... But why, why was that? Yeah, because you... No, I mean, uh, the people who used to go out, you know, just like uh, sort of slaves and not very intelligent, that was the assumption back then. Okay. And I, I, I got to admit, I, I was carried away by this assumption. And I was a foreign affairs editor, so I never went out, you know, and I've been talking about places I've never been in, commentating about people I never met, and I felt, unfortunately, good with myself. Okay, you felt like I'm the intellectual up here. Those are kind of the peasants... Yeah. Out in the field doing the grunt work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And okay. I tell you what happened. But let me just get some context for a minute. You know, how how long have correspondents been able to get into war zones and actually report with shit flying over their heads? From the very beginning of the first war. 
Okay. Yeah, and actually Vietnam was like the most open place without any censorship, without any consideration. I mean, a correspondent uh, could, you know, run uh, to a military commander and tell him, listen, I want to join you in the chopper and go exactly to the first line. This is why a lot of journalists were killed in oh, Vietnam. Wow. Okay. And if you watch uh, the amazing documentary of Ken Burns about uh, Vietnam, you will see also the part of uh, journalism while in there. Never in history uh, a battle and a war was covered in such a way. I mean, you saw everything. You did. Even, Even Eli, very graphic, very graphic image. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. graphic images. You know, things that you would not be able to to put on TV now. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like we only wish that could have happened more during World War Two. Maybe, maybe there'd be more awareness of what's going on. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So, what was your first? Um, what was your first field? War zone. Did you want to go straight to the war zone, or do you say, "Let me start with just covering pasta making in Italy"? <laughs> I mean, so, something happened. I mean, the chattered completely all my perception. Okay. Uh, because when you are a commentator, you have like your sources, wise people you talk to. Uh, they should be like head of states or very influential people if they are not head of states. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everything you know turned upside down. You know, because the world we know and the hierarchy of uh, the world turned upside down. I mean, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. Right. Then what the Middle East collapsed. Like 82? The beginning uh, was 1989 when the Berlin Wall oh, came okay. down. Oh, okay. Sorry, so when my the, history's not great, so I apologize. Okay. It's okay. Thank so, you. So when the Berlin Wall uh, came down, yep. um, everything changed. Okay. Even before, you know, it was June 1989. And I remember the massacre at Tiananmen Square, and all the pundits and all the commentators were wrong about the Berlin Wall. All the commentators were wrong. How about, were they wrong? They say that it could not happen. That they, oh, that, they didn't think it was going to happen. <coughs> okay. Yeah, they say that the Eastern Bloc, you know, is here forever. That the Soviet Union is here forever, you know. And then it collapsed. And then you realize that something happened, which is different from what you were used to, because it's not like the leaders that decide what is going to be you know, with the people, but the people from the bottom, right. like the normal people, rising up and change the old world. So when you are a commentator in the studio, you, ha you are in touch with very, very important people at the top, but these high people at the top became irrelevant. Right. You needed to go out to the field and talk to the normal people, the real people, who make the change. And this is where, like, all my perception, you know, completely crushed. And then but I realized... Not, obviously, the Berlin Wall falling is not the first revolution. I mean, people have been revolting, you know what I mean? The common people have been revolting since the beginning of time, right? Yeah, but, but I relating to the... My life. For your life. Okay, okay, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. So that happened to you and you're like, what the fuck am yeah. I doing talking to these people isolated in the higher echelons of whatever? Yeah, I mean, uh, we live in time when you know something is fixed and this will be forever, like uh, right. the Soviet Union yeah. or like no, uh, right, right. Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Yeah. And then all of that, everything is yeah. dying down. Yeah. So you don't know what is happening, who should I relate to? Is there like a good expert to talk to? And then you realize, no, you, you should go there. I mean, it was the first realization of what now I call journalism. Okay. What I did back then, I did something that I felt fine with, but it wasn't I don't like it, mind. no. Okay. No, I don't and how like old it. were you when you had that uh, epiphany? 23. Okay. Yeah. And so what did you do? Who did you approach to kind of get out in the field? Okay. So then uh, the war in uh, Croatia broke right. out. It was 1991. 1991. Was that way? So break, history check for me. Sorry, folks. My, I'm ignorant. Yugoslavia had no. already been broken up. No. So it was still Yugoslavia, which was Bosnia, Herzegovina, 
and then Ser Serbia and Croatia, is that right? Even more. There's I mean, more a little... Yeah, Yugoslavia was an entity right. uh, comprised of uh, Slovenia, okay. Croatia, okay. Bosnia-Herzegovina, yep. Macedonia, Ooh. Montenegro, oh. and Serbia. Okay, so you have even a region of Kosovo. Which are ethnically different. It was back then within Serbia, but it was seven regions. And all of a sudden, it collapsed and shattered into pieces. Okay, what, okay. we won't go into history. I'll look it up. Just Wikipedia that shit if you don't But know it was the first war uh, on the European continent since World War II. Okay. And I really, really wanted to cover it. And when I went over, you know, I decided I'm, I'm going to do it. And when I talk, you know, like to the commander of uh, the Army Radio Station, he say, <laughs> You will cover it. Come on. I mean, you ne you never went out, even to the parliament. You're you not never left Tel Aviv. Yeah, and look at you. I mean, I mean, you don't you look, look like. You look great. The shirt's a little on the sweaty side. Did you walk in the heat? Did you bike over here? What the fuck happened here? Yeah, yeah. He uh, shows up. He's like drenched, just yeah. like in a puddle. I'm sorry. It's but, okay, but, but you're you a know, war correspondent, so I forgive you. It gives a feel of like edge. This is a war zone. Yeah. I my mean, emotional state. I've is been in wildfires in Bosnia. I've been in uh, Libya. You know, in the now desert. In my apartment. Fifty degrees. <laughs> but but you know, getting on a bike in Tel Aviv in August. I know that's that's worse. It's than way anything. worse. I yeah, yeah. It. No, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. I'm sorry about it. But, no, but, it's all good. So I love you for it. It's, it's all good. And you know, I got this angle. We're good on this angle. Yeah. And you're a handsome fan. What are you? Seven feet tall? What? Are you, how tall are you? Six four. Six four? You feel taller than six. I'm five four. You literally are a human taller Because I'm skinny. I'm so skinny. You're skinny. You, know, yeah. you have a cute head, and I like the big, the big hair. Yeah. We're, we're, I guess we're diverting a bit from our topic, and we're talking about the war. No, I think it has to do with our topic because you know people look at me and and they laugh, you know, from uh, uh, you know the idea that I will cover the most dangerous place on earth. I mean, there are people, right. you know, especially in Israel, which look like you know macho like people. The, the Rambo's. And by the way, this is exactly the way I felt. Were you okay? So wait, let's. I just want to stay on track for a minute. So you went, you went there. You were intimidated. You felt like you weren't enough of a yeah, macho, macho guy to kind of correspond. You you'd have no um you had no weapons when you go there. You're not protected never, by anything. Never, you never carry never. anything. Yeah. Which is, I guess, smart. I'm going by myself. By yourself, your own camera, your your own DP. Yeah. You bring your own equipment, and Israeli. And this was not under the auspices of Israeli Armor Radio. This is you're an independent correspondent now working for Israeli television station, or you know. When they didn't let me go, I just, you know, took the initiative, took okay. a, a small equipment and went there by myself, you know, because I wanted to be like part of history. Amazing. Because I remember still, you know, to this day, the name of the guy in BBC World Service, Short Waves 1323, covering uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. His name was Graham Leach. And, you know, it so he's like, he's, he's, he's talking about history. Yeah. I mean, and I was so envy. Th this is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the most interesting places on earth. Wow. And to be there, you know, and cover everything. And actually Croatia, and you know, one year later was Bosnia, was my first opportunity. But it was like a great disillusion. The first day that I came over there, you know, uh, there were, I was caught in some sniper fire. Along so you literally went into the combat zones. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to ask permission there? How did you? Who were your liaisons? You just showed up. You got off the plane at the airport, took a taxi, and said, "Take me to the war zone." Yeah, it is a complete chaos. Wow. It is a complete, complete chaos, and this is exactly what you do. You try to, uh, you know, to to improvise your way inside. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing like. And this wasn't. It the is not done in an ordinary right. manner. Okay. You got to improvise your way inside. Okay. And, and, and then, you know, when I was caught in a sniper fire, I, I, I was completely shaken. I was paralyzed. I would have shat my pants. Yeah, more or less. Jesus Christ. I mean... It's terrifying, I guess, because you, you were also um, 
A, you're on foreign soil. B, you said that you were not in combat here. You weren't in a combat unit here in the Army, so you didn't no. have, so to speak, no, any no. combat experience. I never shot a gun. I never shot a rifle in you know, my you're life. you're like a nice, tall, artsy type with, like, bushy hair, and yeah. you just wanted to sit behind yeah, yeah, a desk yeah. and talk yeah. intellectual reporting, and suddenly you're in fucking Croatia. Yeah, and Bosnia. And Bosnia. And, and then, you know, when I was so... So much afraid, and I collapsed on the ground. I really, you had a panic and it's not, it's not a figure of speech. I, I collapsed on the ground. Mm -hmm. My, my, my feet couldn't stand. Oh, and while on the ground, you know, beside, you know, uh, being very much afraid, you know, it is that sad realization that uh, I admit it, you ain't got it. You wanted to be a field correspondent to feel the heartbeat. Right. You ain't got it. And the thing is, you know, you're looking from, from the ground up at the people, and they are so big and they are so muscular. And it is like, uh, you know, a uh, point of view of Lenny Riefenstahl point of view, you yes, know, like well, making them... most of my life because I'm 5'4", <laughs> so you don't know what it's like. I'm constantly looking up at people's nostrils and everybody looks big and intimidating to me. Oh, That's why I try okay. to get bigger with my, with my hair. Yeah. It's okay. the only thing I can do. But, okay, so you, but this was what, day three, day four that you're there? Day one. Day one? Yeah, yeah, Sniper day fire day one. You weren't like, yeah. let me stop at a coffee shop for like, <laughs> let me just ease into it. You're no. like, let me just go in and get shot at. Okay. Yeah. So what happened? What happened then? You're looking up at these... They're big people. Yeah. They're, they're br br not brusque. I just made that word up. And the realization was, you know, my realization, you know, it is a place for people like that. This is a man. This is a real man. You know, yeah. the one over there is big. Look at you, like skinny boys, tears in his eyes. I mean, and I just wanted oh. to run away. Oh, honey. And the thing is that, you know, running away from Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, mm -hmm. was more dangerous than staying in Bosnia because, you know, the... Uh, in Bosnia, you know, you could hide from sniper fire when you went, you know, behind a wall. Right. And you needed walls, you know, and hills yeah. for a cover. When you went outside of Sarajevo, you know, no cover for you. Um, okay, so you're there, you're looking up at these big guys, you had kind of a panic attack. This is in the midst of the sniper fire. There's no cover, you're not in Sarajevo. <laughs> yeah. you're, in, you're out in the open. Were people around you getting shot? Yeah. So I stayed in Bosnia because I was afraid. Okay, so you st oh, oh, interesting. So the wor the other leaving would have been worse than staying. Yeah, yeah. So you gathered your, yourself up, you mustered yourself up, and you said, you, you said, I'm not flying home. I'm gonna st I'm stay here, and I'm gonna stick stick to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because being afraid, you know, uh, some of uh, the friends that I made, you know, in the first day, tried to come to my hotel room and persuade me to go out and to oh. give it a chance again and I say no way no way get out uh, but in the second day I gave it a chance because you know it was a ceasefire for f few hours oh, wow. okay. so it was like an opportunity for me to get out I was very scared but I did get out and then something interesting happened people talked to me and that was my dream that was my vision you know the like, average people the soldiers or everybody everybody okay. especially by the way the victims because you know the victims it was a horrifying war. Horrifying war. Who was fighting war. against who in this war? In Bosnia, you had like the three entities, Serbs, Croats, and Muslims. The Muslims of Bosnia were people who once, you know, were Serbs or Croats okay. and became Muslims when it came to be under the Ottoman Empire. Okay. But, you know, they were fighting together. They look like brothers. It is the same language, but this is it, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Civil war between brothers is the worst. Mm -hmm. And it was also a systematic raping of women. Oh, God. And I remember okay. one of my colleagues, you know, one who I adored because he looked so macho. And uh, yeah. he told me that the thing is that the, these women uh, don't talk. Oh. And it took me a while to realize why they wouldn't talk to him or his alike because he looks so muscular. 
Yeah, even if he is a good guy, and he is a good guy, yeah. you know, the impression that once get, whether he is a child victim or a yeah. woman that, uh, God forbid, was raped, you know, it reminds her, you know, the appearance of uh, the thug who yeah. attacked yeah, yeah. Here. And, and you know, it is not the case with me. You can say a lot of things about me, but... Right. You don't look thuggy. Being skinny, you know, it's not that I'm getting into a room or a neighborhood and people say, oh my God, look, it came yeah, here. Let's, let's run away. Right. So you have... It's also your... I believe it's your face. I don't think it's about... I like skinny. Skinny's fine. But if you're a skinny dude with a scary face, you're not going to get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you have right. very yeah. kind eyes and you <laughs> yeah. have a very uh, demeanor. Maybe, I don't know, you tell me, but were you... Maybe you were also emanating this authentic sense of fear. You know what I mean? You weren't pretending to, I don't know, you tell me, but you, you weren't pretending to be like fearless and kind of run around. You were like, I'm also as scared as you are to be here. Let's talk about it. Or was that not the case? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. People By the way, later on, later on, you know, in other places, uh, you know, like, like uh, Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan, I had to put a brave face as if I'm not afraid, but right. we will get to that later on. But back then, you know, I was very authentic yeah. this is the way I look you're a kid and uh, they relate to me and people talk to me more than they talk to the these muscular people who I yeah. adored yeah. and yeah. this is where I realized for the first time that what I thought of as a disadvantage might be actually a point of strength and and this is when I came a bit more relaxed with myself. Oh, I managed to I managed okay. to to get around there. I became a bit more courageous. I'm I'm, I'm still you know the frightened guy. Right. I will forever well, be. I'm sure, you got tougher too. You toughen up with experience. I mean, you've seen. Yeah, shit. but I never tried to tell myself that uh, now I'm brave. No, no, no. I, right. I'm always afraid, but I'm very much you know like uh, in a in a different mode. Well, I think you're brave because you're afraid and you still move forward. If people move forward, if they're not scared, it's not brave. They might be either looney tune or disconnected. You know what I mean? If you're really in touch with the ramifications yeah. and you still move forward, that to me is, is brave. So what about female? I'm sure the female correspondents had that advantage too, in a sense, of being able to talk to people and talk to mothers and children without seeming as, as frightening. Is that? I mean, were there any female field correspondents at the time? Sure. I think uh, where, wherever I go now, and it is the most, you know, devastating places and scary places on earth yeah. uh, you see women correspondent women uh, camera women right. uh, all over and I have some colleagues you know women who go to places and they tell me hey Itai, let's go there <laughs> no I'm not I'm not right. I mean if you want to go there good for you but I'm not going over there so there are women all over um, I think women themselves would give you the best answer but the way I see it is this one on the one hand, you have a great disadvantage because you can go and be harassed and be attacked for being a woman. Right. On the other hand, something can happen completely the other way. I mean, people will be nicer to you because you are a woman and you will get an access that me as a man, I will not get it. In some places, you know, like a woman colleague opens the way for me because, you know, uh, the people over there like her and uh, they, in some places, people are very hypocrites, you know, because yeah, to their course. own women, they treat like, you know, like the shit. dust. Yeah. But when a woman, you come as an outsider, you know, you, you are being relayed, they, they treat you as a princess. Oh, well, that's the double-edged sword there, right? Either never as a, as a peer, never as a peer, either elevating or, or you know, denigrating. Yeah, so, so, you know, once she gets an access and I, I don't, you know, it's an, an advantage for her. But uh, I think a woman would give you the best answer because, you know, 
there are women who gain a lot of advantage from being women and there are women who suffered really of a course, lot because there were women in a very muscular place, you know, yeah, and yeah. they were treated in a very, very bad way because of that. Did you know that female reporter that was killed in Syria? I saw that movie about her with Rosamund Pike with the eye patch. Mari Colvin. Mari Colvin. Yeah, yeah. She was unbelievable, that yeah. woman. I mean, my God, eloquent and dedicated and fearless. Maybe not fearless, but again, brave. I don't want to say fearless, but... Mary Colvin among the war correspondents was number one. You know, regardless Amazing. of uh, men and women, Mary yeah. Colvin was number one. And she did you her a lot? Did you end up spending time with her? Never. I Never? just saw her. Oh. I just I just saw her one time. Okay. But I got to tell you th something about my job. I'm not trying to become friendly over there. Not because I'm not a friendly man, but... Well, maybe you're not a friend of That's okay, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. You don't have to be social. Maybe you don't have the energy to chit-chat. No. The problem is that I'm an Israeli in places uh, that you cannot be an Israeli. Oh, not talking right, about I Bosnia. That's fascinating to me. I mean, where you are an Israeli over there, and you know, I, I have a foreign passport. But what passport do you have? I have an American passport. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. As you see, I, I haven't got like an English of uh, an American because I never lived in the United yeah. States. I was Your born. Your parents are American. No, my parents Israelis uh, been studying in Columbia University of New York. Okay, when I uh, was born, you know, immediately they came back, so I don't remember anything, okay. but I have this passport. Okay. And uh, with this passport, I'm allowed to go to places that as an Israeli I can't. And I, I speak, you know, like uh, five languages, wow. so I, I can... Fluent? No. You get by, though. Yeah, I get yeah, by. Yeah, I get I'm sure by. you do. Even with Arabic, by the way. Wow, well, I'm sure. Yeah, so... So, um, so you don't want to let to give too much information to other journalists? I can trick my way inside, but you cannot trick a journalist. And once, you know... So, so I can approach people who know me. Right. And I trust them completely. But even if there are some very interesting people, like Mary Colvin, for example... Yeah that I would like to know, you know, the fact that I'm an Israeli and it might be an issue, oh, there is an Israeli among us, and journalists, they don't it's a group like of Israel people who are, so much. no, there, there are people who are talking, yeah, and yeah. gossiping, right. yeah, even right. in war zones, you know, so, and so then, and talking a lot, they're a lot of the movie, there's intercourse between correspondents, I mean, there's romances all the time, you're stuck in wherever, probably only for me, it never happened, I'm <laughs> sorry to hear yeah. that, <laughs> I yeah, yeah. think I'm getting action, no, I, I mean, seriously, uh, you know, I get what you're saying, you have to it, stay so, it sounds maybe a bit, a bit righteous, but it never happened to me, and I, and I really never was, like, into it. Are we talking about the sex? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. I always have no problem talking about that. You, you know, you have, like, a feeling back then I had, uh, again, it might sound righteous, but, like, I'm very privileged in order to be in the most interesting place in the most interesting point of time, and I have, like, a duty. I mean, it's on my shoulder yeah. to bring to my people what's going on. It's not the case now, because, you know... You don't need me in order to tell you that there is a war in Syria. But right. Back at the time in Bosnia, we were few, and you didn't know anything. Yeah. And there was no internet, and there was nothing, so you needed to have my dispatches from there. Yeah. You needed, like, to right, right. my accounts, yeah. my videos, uh, my photos in order to understand what is happening. So, you know, it was like a responsibility burned sure. on your shoulders. Now it's different. Yeah, I mean, now you have enough of the civilians also sending videos, right? What do you call that? Popular... Is there a terminology for it? Now I think it became so spread all over. Yeah. So, so the role of a journalist is like, I think it's like to bring you, you know, in all this mass of uh, information, yes. you know, something that you can trust. And this is why you should trust me. So you will trust me only, you know, while if you have watched my uh, documentaries and my reports for 25 years and okay I trust this guy because you got everything from all over and you got fake yes. news yes. and you do of have course. fake news no, all over 
So yeah. yes, it's hard to know. Look, anytime, you know, I think that um, anytime you get news from, let's say, a, like you said, the Fox News, they have seen it. Everybody's got a political agenda these days, right? Yeah. But when yeah. you have, um, and obviously, even when you're in a war zone, you're capturing only part of it, right? You're only talking a part. There's always going to be a bias. You're always going to have to. to filter through the conduit of who your correspondent is. And that's why people kind of choose the people that they like, right? They get per- like Anderson Cooper, do you like whatever, Tucker Carlson or whatever. Well, he's not a war course. We know what I mean. So I think today people, the danger, not danger, but the fact that we think we have a lot more inside view because of people taking videos, because of whatever, you know, the danger, we, then we trust that too, also too much. We forget that no matter who is taking something, it's a person with an opinion, who's capturing something, right? It's, it's unless you're, even if you're there, how do you even get like a non-biased big picture? I think it's impossible, but now you have more sources, but you still have to remember that it's, you're still going to sources, right? I mean, it's not a first-hand account. Yeah, I mean, the best you can do, you yeah. know, no, no one is a robot. Exactly. For the time being, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, we'll you have right. feeling, you have preferences. You can say this is a beautiful woman, this is a very, very rude and cruel man. I mean, once you feel it, so you will never be objective. But you have like the uh, the ability to know it and the ability to be responsible and to go all sides. Yes. I will go to all sides. Yeah. So obviously, you are here and you are not all over. But even in Israel, you know, I'm an Israeli, but I will never be all over. And even in my own building, I will never know. You know every citizen, you know, in every floor. Right. So it cannot be. I mean, there is not like a, an objective way of bringing the truth. Yes. I mean, if even if you bring like, a, if this sound, you know, is a bit rough or if you put music, you know, it's like it an, an, an editorial thing. Yeah, of course. Well, so, I edit, you know what I mean? I edit, I got to edit shit for time and I got to edit stuff and I make yeah. editorial decisions and hopefully sustain the authenticity. But you're right, it's up to every single person. The problem is people are lazy. And people like, these days especially, the sound bites, the, the, you know, what's sexy, right? I had interviewed uh, Suli Khatib, this Palestinian gentleman, and I asked him why there's not more peace movement in the Palestinian territories. Why don't he goes, there is, we just don't hear about it. Yeah. It's not sexy. You know what I mean? There are, there's apparently, he organizes once a month, he organizes like a pro-peace protest, but yeah. no one's going to cover that. I mean, it's unfortunate, but I, I believe that. But yeah, what, you, know, you know, in Israel now, he's got a point. Um, you know, like 10 years ago, I've been covering a lot, uh, Gaza and the West Bank, and now I hardly do it. You know, there is less and less demand in the Israeli television right. for covering, you know, Palestinian and Arabian affairs. That's interesting. Yeah. Why do you think that it is? is very unfortunate. Because there's so much shit going on with Bibi here, and they care more about whether his wife's You know, the consideration massages. are rating, whether it will bring us a lot of uh, viewers or not, and whether okay. people would like yeah. to watch or not, or maybe... Right. People prefer, you know, you watch, you know, television and people want to escape. Stuff. You're right. People don't want to face reality. Uh, and when it is very difficult, you know, and you got a dissonance in your head, you don't want to live with a dissonance. You want, you know, instead of, you know, going deep into gray areas, you prefer someone who come and speak in front of you like a commentator. This is black and this is white. We are the good guys. They are yes. the best guys. Make it simple. And, Keep and it then simple. you don't see anything over there. Yeah. By the way, this is why I am going to these places because trying to bring Israelis, unfortunately, a lot of them, you know, um, live with the stereotypes that anyone beyond the border is like a pure enemy, okay. like a different look of how things look like from f- look like from within. I'm not right. saying they're actually good, but, yeah. but this is it. Take it. But this is real life, you know, over there. And right. as you say, you know, I, I'm not. 
I, I cannot be present, you know, in 100 places. Of I, I will be in 20. Yes. I'm not there, you know, for five years. I'm for three weeks. But still, it is an account which is way better, you know, that, you Absolutely. know, being told by a commentator never been there. Never been there, of course. Yeah. Now, well, tell me about, I know you covered um, ISIS, right, for a while. You kind of went in. Uh, where, where did ISIS originate? This, this movement to kind of create this caliphate uh, surface. So where did that start and when did you go and... Yeah, I mean, ISIS came into being, you know, uh, the first time we realized there is ISIS uh, and what ISIS is, is after a very unfortunate uh, event when they beheaded uh, James Foley. And James Foley, you know, unlike Mary Colvin, he was a friend, he was a colleague. Oh, wow. And we enter Syria the same uh, week, November 2012. Okay. Uh, we were smuggled, I was smuggled. How do you smuggle, the back of a truck or something? No, it was, uh, you know, we, we made a report about like Syrian refugees okay. who escaped from Syria inside Turkey and they were on the border and we became friends. And then they told us, you know, we get inside Syria and get back here okay. and get inside Syria. And me as an Israeli, you know, it's very difficult to cross borders. So you say, what do you mean? It's so easy to get inside, in and out. Right. And he said, yeah, I mean, you got eight. 100 kilometers of border, but you hardly have border fence. Yeah. So, you know, you have like patrol of the Turkish army. So imagine like a old espionage movie. You have to wait for the, you know, soldier to cross and then you sneak your way inside. Mm -hmm. And I emphasize it because, you know, it is very important to understand how easy it is to get inside Syria. Wow. Like to the most dangerous place on earth. Yeah. So. Well, when it's so dangerous, nobody wants to get inside, right? That's its own border protection. Okay. But, you know, at the beginning, we were not aware, you know, because uh, we've been in Tunisia, in Egypt, and Libya. It was not like uh, deliberately killing journalists over there. Okay. Even James Foley, he, he was in prison in Libya. It Who was, was he working for? He, he came from Boston. Okay. And he dispatched for a radio and a newspaper. Okay, and, okay. Uh, you know, then... You know, CNN could make an interview with him when he was in the field. Okay. But imagine, you know, when we crossed inside with a notion that, you know, if you become a prisoner, it is more of an adventure than a risk to your life, mm -hmm. because this is what happened till that point. But this is where the point where the revolution in the Middle East were hijacked, a lot of them, this by, 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 by jihadists. Right. By jihadists. Yeah. And, and by the way, people who are not Syrians and not Iraqis, you know, mainly foreigners who came inside and, you know, don't give a shit about, like, what will be left out of what we know as Syria or Iraq. So he went here and I went over there. You know, there were a few kilometers, you know, between the path he took and the path I took. Okay. And I met very nice people. I even told them that I'm a Jewish man and they told me, you're welcome, no problem. And then, you know, like, a few kilometers, you know, to the south, yeah. this is where James Foley went and this is another territory occupied by a different militia. These are the people who sold him to ISIS. Now, what makes things even worse for me is when I relate now to your question of where it all began. Yeah. You know, the origin of ISIS, you know, back at the time, these yes. people had no idea that they would become ISIS and what ISIS is. But they were soldiers of uh, the Iraqi army, uh, of Saddam Hussein army. They were okay. called the Ba'ath soldier because right. you know there was the Ba'ath party, party. Yeah. yeah exactly and when the united states invaded iraq yeah. the u.s soldiers uh were not planning to be there forever yeah. i mean in some point they will pull off and in order to keep iraq stable they decided to form a new iraqi army and they said you know all iraqis are very welcome to join you'll have a good money but one exception one group 
under no circumstances could take part in this Iraqi army, and these will be the Baathists. You know, because you know it's the Baathists were the Saddam loyalists. <laughs> yeah, and actually, Even they were. Saddam was dead already. They they were the only Iraqi army. You know, you didn't have another army in Iraq. These are this the only it. people who knew how to fight. What right. is uh, tactic, uh, strategy, line of defense? Right. And in one sentence, as an American, you say, you know, all these people, quarter of a million people, wow. out, and they became very much humiliated, you know, with a sense of revenge. And they are, I don't want to get into complexity, they are Sunni Muslims. Okay. And they say, okay, now Iraq becomes Shia, because Shia are the majority in Iraq. And Even though the rest of the Arab world, Sunni is the majority. Sunni is the majority. Except in Iran and Iraq, where it's Shiite. Yeah, but even in Syria, you know, uh, Bashar Assad is an Alawite, which is a you know branch within the Shia. Okay. And even though there are only thirteen percent of Syria, they're the ruling The party. Shia. Yeah. Now is like ruling yeah. is a dominant force, and everybody who is a Shia in the neighborhood, whether it is Hezbollah, you know, from South Lebanon yes. or Iran, they will support Assad and they will fight, you know, to their death, and a lot of them are dying in order to keep him in power and not him to be ousted, you know, and the majority of the Sunnis will take it. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't think people, people realize, but, I, you know, especially when you th think of the context of Israel, you think like the Arabs are one, you know, the Arabs are one unit, and then the Arab, uh, the Israelis are another. But then when you look, if you take Israel out of the equation, the amount yeah. of animosity and, and hatred within the Arab world and the countries is astounding. I mean, the Shia, the Sunni, I mean, right, so there's... The Shia and the Sunni actually now fighting a war that began uh, 1,300 years ago, you know, with the death of Muhammad and right. with the question, who will Who's replace the, him? Yeah, is it the guy, the bloodline, or yeah. some random dude? So and Sunni and the Shia, the way they are fighting, you know, Israel, you know, like number five in the it's preference of the... the yeah, yeah, they want okay. us, you know, to be eliminated, yeah. but, you know, it is much more important to them to keep on the way that they think that God would like them to continue, whether right. you are Shia or Sunni. But back to the Ba'ath soldiers, yes. you know, I became friends with them. You know, I went there in 2003. Do they have mustaches? Every time I see videos about Iraq, everybody has mustaches. Like, everybody. No? Uh, a lot. But right? Like the Saddam stash. Like, you know what I mean? A lot of them, yeah. It's a yeah. good look. I like mustaches. I'm not, this yeah, is not a criticism. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying it seemed to be a popular A lot look. of them are, but, but not everybody. Oh, well, and I it's not, you know, that the people without the mustache, you know... <laughs> Are rejects of society. Yeah, yeah, They're legitimate no, no. humans too. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. I'm just saying. I like. I like. I like facial hair. At least it's not goatees. If anybody had goatees, yeah. I'd be horrified. The stash is a nice look. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. There's certain things that I, are important to me. Yeah. So the Ba'ath soldiers were bitter, and they're like, "What?" The and fuck? I came there, you know, as an Israeli, 2003. It was the first time me in Iraq, and I was very interested to see the people who were, you know, shooting in my city, Tel Aviv, Scud missile. Oh right. That's and I came to these people. Oh, they were yes. not aware that I'm an Israeli, but. They were fond of me because I related to them, you know, in a serious way. Everybody yeah. laughed at them because the American, you know, threw them away. Right. Like they called them the garbage of history. And I treated Jesus. them very seriously. I documented them, you know, for two weeks. We became friends. They even protected me. Imagine, and I got it on tape, you know, like they're marching in the streets of Baghdad, threatening, you know, to burn the world. There will be no Iraq. We will kill Iraq. There will be no Syria. We will kill Syria. Everything is going to change. I was laughing inside, of course, right. but they protected me. You see me among them because back then we were friends. Then these people became like uh, the backbone of the military force of ISIS. When ISIS oh, wow. came into being, okay. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you know, was uh, like uh, the leader of uh, uh, Al-Qaeda branch yes. in Iraq. Okay. But the military force right. mainly was these people. So these were 
friends of mine and these ex-friends of mine yes. some of them or the organization of which they belong now they beheaded my friend James Foley oh, so, so so you think a lot about everything you think a lot about you know whether you were lucky or whether you know it was completely different time and whether these people were really nice and you you thought that they are nice have their you know uh, of uh, transformation well it's scary it's like when people like let's say you were let's say World War II you, you hung out with a bunch of Nazis in a coffee shop you know what I mean didn't know they were Nazis or didn't know what they were capable of but you had a nice coffee and you could talk to them about you know parenting I mean it's it's hard because these people which again it's everybody's human and then you have what what drives people to these extremes and is it religion I remember watching a video maybe it was something that you had covered that some of these people say they were on drugs like a lot of these people were taking hallucinogenics and I don't know maybe speed drug drugs exist That's, yeah. <laughs> drugs exist and people use it by the way not only among ISIS you know even Hezbollah you know it brings you courage that you do not have naturally yeah and even if you are uh, you know injured even if you lost a leg you will be able to continue to fight for uh, you know a few more hours right. and it is something that you need sort of a permission from your you know authority uh, religious authority to have and if you know everything in religious is about interpretation with yes. all due respect you know to the uh, Bible or the New Testament or the Quran at the end of the day it is the interpretation that you give to the word right so you might have a very mild and moderate interpretation and you, you might have a very fanatic one so you need just to find your Imam your authority that will say yeah, this drug you know in the situation that we are you're allowed to take it so they take it yeah. And it might, you know, help them to do things that they will never do otherwise. You know, in the, if I cut, you know, to the massacre, the genocide in Rwanda, you know, yes. where Hutus massacred 800,000 Tutsis, wow. you know, and moderate Hutus who helped the Tutsis. They had like, um, you know, food, the soldiers that you get, okay. but you had to drink also brandy. Oh, interesting. Because people had hard time, you know, killing children for example yeah, but when you drink alcohol you get into the orgy of killing much easier right so it's like a technique used back then okay and I've been talking to a lot of people who took part in the massacre later on in order to understand what so you literally interview people that took plate took that slaughtered people yeah in, in, in Rwanda specifically they are getting back to society this is like the policy of uh, of the head of state of Rwanda Paul Kagame they're not incarcerated they're not they're free no. they're roaming free only, only the architects of the massacre okay but the people would say I only you know joined because I had no choice yeah and I was a small part you know in the big machine they are being brought back to society this is his policy like policy of reconciliation it is something also very Christian wow. you know we should bring it back even in South Africa you know post-apartheid you know the words like the uh, reconciliation yes. um, uh, you know I'm pessimistic in the sense that already at the first uh, spot in Bosnia mm -hmm. you know these people were neighbors the Muslim the Serbs oh, and the Croats so they, they were good you know yeah. you could bring your child you know to a babysitter who was from other ethnicity but everybody was a Yugoslav they didn't consider to be themselves to be like uh, I'm a Muslim uh, yeah. origin or a Serb origin or Croatian origin we are Yugoslav and it is fine and we have like a Yugoslav basketball team and we were number one in the world you oh, know were they? yeah head of uh, Soviet Union in the oh, United States okay. and we like being Yugoslavs yeah but then you know when everything explodes you know people just lost it and you would try to murder the kid you were babysitting That's crazy. so I've been talking to people because it is so you know interesting and intriguing you know and 
I remember some people tell me, listen, I know all the chaos and I know how people lose their mind, but it will not happen to me. It happened to a lot of my neighbors and I believed him. But if, again, God forbid, you know, within two weeks, someone will take his daughter and will rape her, yeah. five people, and maybe they will kill her later on. And these things happen. Yeah. Danny, you know, immediately. He won't lose his mind. Won't head to the machete or to yeah. the machine gun or the stripes, you know, of uh, the most extreme unit and go and kill the other parts as well. So it is very easy to drag the normal people uh, into being extremists. This is like my experience from there, which was very, a very, very pessimistic one. Well, I think it's hard because I think what you're saying is, you know, again, it's tricky because you're seeing... Uh, you're seeing these things from up close and you're, I'm assuming you're also attempting to not only document, but understand what drives people, right? I think we're all trying to explain, right? Cause we're all human. Yeah. We're all, we're all made of the same genetic makeup. So what drives certain people to do certain atrocities and whatnot? You can blame econ, all that you're saying, same thing, economy, land, you know, whatever. We're animals, but we have consciousness and we're not just animals slaughtering over a piece of meat. Cause it's not usually a piece of meat. It's ideas, and it's all this other fucked up shit that it's we're... It's the other. The other, you need, exactly. It's the you need tribalism, like to, it's the other. Yeah, you and need so, to define another in order to know who you are, unfortunately. Yes. But if you're there, and you are, like you said, you're talking to the Baath party dudes, and you see them as just human, and then you're like, how do you reconcile I'm talking to this these dudes? And you want to feel compassion for them, too, because the problem is the minute you encounter them, you feel compassion, right? You're trying to understand them, and then they slice this guy's head off. So I'm sure that's an internal conflict that you had to deal with at some point, but it actually made you more pessimistic and say, you know what, these aren't nice guys. Like, it did make you understand the more, it made you understand the less, maybe? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, I get where they're coming from, it's desperate, you know, people try and explain it's desperation to lead someone to become a suicide bomber. I'm like, well, I don't know, is that is that a cop-out? Do you know what I mean? I'm very much afraid, you know, of people who can explain everything. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, because right. Because back then, you see that it's not black and white the way you wanted it to be. Yeah. Because it's easier, you know, for a journalist and for an outsider to regard, okay, who are the bad guys, the good guys, and everything. I mean, we are Israelis, we know it. Yeah. I mean, uh, sincere with with itself, each and every one of us, you know, know right. that it is not exactly black and white. We are not, ex you know, the extreme good and the other extreme bad. By the way, it is not the other way around. So there are gray areas, and, and people are, you know, like tired to get into gray areas. Yes. I, I need the headlines, who is the good? Who is the bad? And and when when you need like the other, and this is like the big curse, you need another in order to define yourself. You can do nothing and, and then come religion. You know, like I believe in God, but I will never believe in religion because most of the places I've been in No, I think it all the places okay. I've been in had to do with religion. Mm -hmm. People absolutely convinced like they have a resolve god told me to do that like i'm not slicing this man's eye or beheading him because you know it's my kick right i'm doing it like technically for god technically the way god would like me to do in order to be a better man and a better believer and they're absolutely convinced you know and this is a problem of almost anything by the way whether you're a muslim whether you're a christian and whether you are a jew i mean this is the way you define yourself you know so i have my belief in god it's like a sick joke, you know, that God would like this guy to, to think or to to become a better person by, you know, by committing a genocide. But it doesn't matter what I think. Right. You know, so, so they have it in mind, absolutely. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And they think that I'm the sinner and I'm the infidel and I know nothing. And my life is like a, a pure shit, you know, of, of nothing, you know. So, so you cannot fight it. And this is why, you know, it is very... You cannot even achieve peace here because, you know, like some people have like a guidance from God that this is completely my land and the other should be completely eliminated. Right. You believe in God like you believe in the Jewish God or do you believe just in a higher power? That I believe in a higher power and, and uh, I am a Jew, so yeah. That's the, but, the but, kind of framework but, that but, you, you know, grew up in, right, your reference point. Like my wife is coming from a family which they believe in Jesus and it's fine, you know. I, right. I never make like a big business out of it because I don't care. Yeah. It's okay. It's your personal thing. Yeah, as long as yeah. you're not using it to the harm. It's like doctors, do no harm, right? That should be everybody's... I think it should be everybody's ethos No, but, on, but, on the but imagine someone, you know, who has a very low life. Excuse me for saying it. You know, have no job, is now interested in uh, learning anything, and uh, is nothing, and is being related to is nothing, whether he's, you know, like right. uh, in Syria or in, uh, like, a uh, Balgir suburb of uh, Paris. Okay. And all of a sudden, hey, I will give you meaning. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, into your life come like, it comes like a message. I will give you a meaning. meaning and I right. will give you the best meaning that can because I would bring you to a place that you will do what God would like you to do. And you that cannot, like as a man, you never had a date with any woman. In my place, you will be able to buy and sell women as many as you like, do whatever you want and do them. Like these, people, these people that you hate, you know, because you're in the suburb and they are like elites, you don't like them, you will be able to punish them you will be able to kill them, you will have to kill them because this is what God would like you to do. And all of a sudden you have a meaning, you have a resolve. I mean, you're a big guy. I mean, it is amazing. I mean, it's such a temptation. Right. And this is why, you know, a lot of people are being tempted to go over there. And yeah. especially when it is a winning side. This is what happened with ISIS. So it is so easy, you know, to, to be attracted to this, you know, kind of organization when life, the way you know it, like a, a normal life, um, in a normative life is something that you is were it, never able to yeah, fit in. not accessible to. I don't know, I guess I'm cynical. I believe that the ISIS folk, and then I want, I want to know a little bit more about where ISIS is now and, and, you know, how high up did you get there in the ranks and who did you talk to, but I believe, like anything, like any cult, I always feel skeptical about the leaders and I believe they don't really believe it they don't really believe they're doing it for Allah or Muhammad or Shiite or Sunni. They just like the power. They like the land. And this is their tactic to get followers. And you promise people what they lack the most. If it's women, if it's money, if it's supporting their family, what glory, you know, self-esteem, community, whatever. And so, I don't know, I'm just cynical in that regard. And I, I've always had the belief in, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But I also believe, uh, and I talk about this a lot, that there are many ways to climb the mountain. And I believe like... That religion should be treated like physics. Like if there was one real God, everybody would know. I just, you know what I mean? That's what I really feel. There's like one, one entity, then everybody would know it. It'd be like gravity. Um, where, where is ISIS now? Like, because I know that they're not without Al Qaeda's different. And then you have Fatah and Hamas. Like, every, you know, they don't believe that Fatah and Hamas are legitimate either, right? Because they, mm -hmm. they believe that. And I remember you speaking about this that. Uh, they they want a Palestinian state, and the Palestinian state is not part of the caliphate, which is under God, right? So they are against. They don't. They think they're heretics. So there's that too, right? So they're not cooperating. 
But where is ISIS now? Is ISIS still a threat? Is it still recruiting people? Where is I don't know where Syria is at. I know the shit's still going down in Syria. Nobody cares anymore. It's not on you know the news as much. But give me kind of an overview. And how was your interaction? How high up did you get in the ISIS uh, ranks? First of all, you know I, I'm able to talk to ISIS people only when they are in captive. Oh, okay. It's impossible, you know, to... They would kill you if, if you... Yeah, if yeah, you it is impossible for any journalist to get inside the, like, ISIS ranks. And their biggest center is Syria now? Is that their hub? Well, you know, they had a, they believe in a caliphate. And the idea of a caliphate, I mean, we are living in, a, in an age where we know that there are states, like sovereign states, national states. Back at the time, you know, there were empires like the Roman Empire, like Austro-Hungary. And when, like, an empire is a Muslim, you would call it caliphate. The head of the caliphate is a caliph. Right. And caliph, you know, in Hebrew is like machlif. Khalif, machlif. is a replacer. He's oh. like the replacer of Muhammad. Okay. <laughs> so, he's number two under Muhammad. He's not number two because he cannot really, you know, uh, he cannot really uh, be the same as Muhammad, but oh, right. he replaces, you know, because yeah, there okay. are no prophet no anymore. Muhammad. Right, right, okay. And, and, you know, since Muhammad did not nominate anyone specific, you know, to replace him, you know, so it's up for discussion it and it's up for the... would have been much easier if he had. If yeah. he had written a note and said, you know what, Steve is going to be my <laughs> next in line, follow Steve and Steve's kids, and yeah. then it would have been done. No, so he did not. I mean, and, and, and he didn't have any, you know, like, natural in, inheritor because he didn't right. have, like, a son. Right, right. He right. had two sons and they died, you know, at the age of one. He had two daughters and a female at Islam back then okay. i mean could not lead right. so it was up for interpretation okay. and some people say this guy you know abu Bakr is like a father of muhammad's wife okay. other people say ali married to one of muhammad's daughters a lot of contenders. and and this is it, it yeah. it's dead you know since then i mean you know it's war forever okay now isis are sunnis so isis you know the biggest rivals are shias right. like yeah, iran no, no. and hezbollah yeah. Yeah. And, you know, ISIS was like the big threat. And I, you, I, I talked, you know, to people who were in captive. So they gave me their, you know, the way they see the world. And, you know, one of them, it was very difficult, you know, to, to make this interview. You know, he said, I, I'm, when I kill someone, I don't use a sharp knife. I use a blunt knife. Oh. I would like to inflict more pain on the oh, victim. And, you know, you, you sit over there and you're speechless and you think you just happen to sit in front of the greatest psychopath on earth. Yeah. And you are wrong because according to his ideas and yeah. to his logic, by doing it technically again with this knife, he yeah. is a better man. It's not only being, you know, sado and everything. Yes. Obviously, you know, it is an element. But, of but, but not yeah. only. They really, really believe. When, when you see like a suicide bomber, you know, a few months ago in Sri Lanka, you see in the cameras, you know, that caught him coming over. He's happy, you know, feel fine with himself. Yeah. With a little smile, you know, at back. He's a little bit bent forward because it got a lot of explosive, you know, in his backpack. But he's even, you know, cursing it out like a little girl. Hello, how are you? Before stepping into the church because he's yeah. about to fulfill his dream, yeah. you know, to explode himself and he will get to heaven. And, and, and he is. It's not like a question, maybe there is not a heaven, maybe there is. You know, he's dreaming about doing it. You know, there is a world upstairs which is much, much better than this world. Right. And you are fine in order to get there. You know, in Mosul, like the final battle of the capital of ISIS in Iraq, okay. uh, we got to a lot of the papers and uh, equipment and books. And, and you see that a lot of ISIS members were fighting who will get to the car 
and become a suicide bomber. Uh, bomber. Wow. Yeah. Like, this is a privilege. Mm -hmm. So it's no use for us to analyze it. And this is why the big mistake, this is why I think people didn't get the idea of ISIS and still don't get it, because we try to analyze it in our psychology. Like, with all due respect, you know, to Western psychology and Western analysis, we have like the game theory. So, yeah. you know, it's like a zero sum. So if he will die and you will die, so you will never commit. No, but no. for me, dying is a profit. Right. So, so, so right. people here cannot analyze and cannot make an interpretation of what they are doing and what they are thinking. And this is the big mistake. And this is why we, we can't understand them. And I think we don't want to understand them because, you know, everything needs to be according to our eyes. And this is the thing with all... With everybody. So, I mean, going there as a field correspondent, you, you, you open your, you know, your, your eyes, right. you breathe, and, and you look at them. You look at people and a different psychology. You're not trying to advocate. You, you're just trying to document. And I love it. You know, back, you know, when I come back with the material, I can think a lot, you know, about the things I saw. But, but while in there, I, I collect like a world of archive, you know, I let them speak. I, I'm, not tr I'm not trying to argue with them. Yeah. It's useless. Yeah. Well, it is useless. You're right. Look, I think I believe any argument about changing people's ideas is useless. That's why I hate those political debates, you know what I mean? Or like even debates, people talking over each other. It's like, what the fuck's the point? Yeah. You're not going to convince anybody whose mind is made up or has an opinion. You can only Especially change now. Hearts, right? Especially now. Especially now. You have to yeah. go through and experience, you know, people that are four guns doesn't matter how many other kids are going to get shot they're going to still be for less gun control except yeah. maybe if their kid gets shot maybe that's the only time like maybe when they really feel in their gut and they've gone through pain then they'll get it but if these people don't have enough empathy or compassion because they're dehumanized you know what i mean or don't value others lives as much as their own they're not going to get it um what have you ever been shot at yeah have you been wounded <laughs> No, thank God. Oh, no. good. Knock on, knock on the sofa here. That's yeah. good. But you've been close. Um, yeah, I mean, and you've seen people next to you. I mean, get, get I don't killed. think that any shouting was like personal like, against me. But no, I'm no, going, no, you know, and there is a lot of crossfire, and there is a lot of things going on, and and you see a lot of people getting hurt, and you know, there is something that you need to say, especially when. And it is not being said, you know, because like one time I went with like an Israeli platoon to Lebanon. And some were injured, and two days later, some, uh, two of them were killed. Uh, and the fact that, you know, I'm here and a soldier was killed, is just because of luck. You know, yeah. with all, you know, you have brave soldiers, you have uh, remarkable commanders, you have tactics and you have strategy, but you also have luck, yeah. sheer luck. You know, the fact that it went here and not know. here, you know, yeah. this is it. And this, it is not something that you can tell to a bereaved mother or you know on the TV okay we're gonna get inside you know some of us might be unlucky and, and get killed but that's life so this is it so you you take a chance I mean I'm trying to be very cautious I mean it might sound weird but I am very very cautious but in some point you take risk I don't want like to commit a suicide act you know I yeah, try to protect you can't be a pussy the whole point is you're going in there to get in there where it's dangerous right where <laughs> nobody else is going in so you have to kind of find, make that decision I guess yeah if you take it into statistics I don't like but if I mean it's not like a worker responded like a 50-50 if he comes back or not I mean 90% you're going to be back home right. more than 90% you're going to be back you're going to be fine but you know the examples where something is wrong and everybody know about James Foley and everybody knows about Mary Colvin yeah, so yeah. you know people ask you why why are you going there well 
I guess they feel a need. I mean, a responsibility, a need. Like anybody who puts themselves in harm's way, right? No, I mean, for, me, for me, this is, you know, very clear. This is yeah, journalism. Yeah. Like I told you at the beginning of the interview, I felt fine when I was in a studio speaking about people I, I never met and about places I've never been to. And now when I think about it, how could it be that someone really related to me and to what I'm saying? And how could it be that someone, you know, like my bosses, you know, let me do this job? But right. unfortunately, when you look at it, this is most of the journalism that we know. Well, do you think, I mean, it's I like mean, being out there is the only kind of journalism that I can believe in, you know. So as right. long as I'm, you know, <laughs> strong mentally and physically, I should keep on doing it. And what was the last, uh, first tell me what was the scariest moment you had? Like what was the scariest experience you had while out in the field? I, I, I can't tell you about account? one, you know. You know, in Bosnia, I was absolutely sure that never in my life something like Bosnia would ever happen to me. Then Afghanistan was something that uh, I felt even scarier because, you know, I needed also to hide my identity. Right. It was like a luxury to be afraid, you know, of a grenade and bombs and, uh, and bullets. Yeah. Uh, then came Iraq and Syria and, and you're in fire and in a line of fire and you see your colleagues uh, getting shot and some of them getting killed. Yeah. And, you know, there is something... Even more, there are the demons in your head. I mean, because sometimes you're afraid, especially, by the way, when I go to sleep. Because while in the field, I'm working. So, like, I'm you're occupied. In yeah, I'm in the zone the and I'm occupying yeah. with something and I hold my camera. I have something to cling to. I have something to hold. I have something that I can aim with. Right. It keeps me going, you know, not, not like not reflecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, reflecting yeah, a lot afterwards. Kind of yeah, yeah. I just, I just yeah. need to act. Yeah. I just need to work. But when, like, I'm going to sleep, like, this wall, the demons come to my of head, course. you know, because I didn't let them go because I was so yeah. busy. And then you might be more afraid than while in the battle itself. Of course. Because you think, you know, outside your tent, did that. That outside your tent, you know, there is something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When was your last field operation, so to speak? When, when did you last go out? Well, actually, it's been a while because I've been... Uh, past year I've been spending in uh, Michigan, I uh, was That's a fellow, a <laughs> I was a fellow in a fellowship in the University of Michigan, it is a wonderful, is it's an Ann amazing Arbor? fellowship, yeah, okay. Ann Arbor, it's a big place, yeah, Knight Wallace, it is a fellowship, uh, 18 selected journalists from all over the world okay, came over, okay. uh, and we just finished, you know, three weeks ago, so there were no war zones over there, my son was born, and, congratulations, uh, yeah, and, uh, got a baby, you got a baby, yeah, I got a baby, you fucking man, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to find me a woman at 51, but yeah, I just had a baby. You go through <laughs> 69 treatments and can't, you know, they can't find it. How old's your wife? 36. There you go. You can't find a 36-year-old dude to make a baby for you if you're 51. All right, well, I'm happy for you. It's just my own bitterness as I age. Yeah. But now that you have a kid, do you feel less inclined because now you feel a responsibility towards your kid to not maybe get killed by accident? Yeah, I do. So I mean, I mean, uh, when you look at it, and it's not only your life, it is very simple. It is his life. I got to tell you, I see people, you know, out there in the field who are fathers, you know, to children, or mothers, yeah. to children. Uh, so I'm not saying to you, oh, no, this is done. Although my wife is telling me, this it's is done. done. You're never going <laughs> to do it again. Her, that's what I say. But, uh, you know, I, it's not that I've been missing it, you know, for the past year. Yeah, I think you did a lot. My God. It's not like you just stayed around Louisiana. I mean, having a kid, you know, when you're 50 years old, you know, like you've done your things. Yeah, so you, so yeah, it's exactly. not like I have my... But you don't My feel like one of those, to do it. Uh, I've done it. 
one of those thrill-seeking addicts. You don't feel that. Because I know like some people that constantly put themselves in harm's way, there's that addiction also to the thrill, and your, your level, your threshold for satisfaction in life is is much higher than most people. And so you, when you start going crazy out of boredom or like, Jesus, I'm not alive if I'm not, you know, I don't have that adrenaline rush. No, I know that a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues are like this. I mean, it never happened to me. I can tell you that, you know, adrenaline was part of the thing in the beginning. It was, you know, and I won't, I won't lie. I mean, it is part of, even if you're not going there for the sake of the adrenaline, and I'm not. And sure. It's not, you know, that while I'm here, I'm trying to swim where sharks are just for the fun, mm -hmm. for the adrenaline. No, I'm not. But over there, you know, I need to cover a place. It is a war. So even if it is a war, I will go there and I will do it. This is how you come, not because you seek the war. Then, you know, you realize that you are able to face it, unlike what you thought in the beginning. And then, you know, the, these parts of the adrenaline, when you are able, like, to, like, like to act, and you're not fainting, you learn so much about yourself. And this is one more thing. I mean, like I thought I knew who I am and what I am, and then you go and you find a lot of things about yourself, not only about other people. So you always, you know, like in a quest, you know. And it is very interesting, and it is very intriguing and, uh, as well. But... Uh, it was not like my wish in life, you know, to be all the time like in action right. and uh, very hectic. So right now when I'm 50, you know, I'm fine. I'm more intelligent. I, I can be in the field and, you know, my dispatches would be much more interesting than, you know, they of were when, when yeah. I was 25. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, biking in Tel Aviv is uh, hectic enough. Okay, great. Yeah. I had an amazing time. I could talk to you for hours, but I know you have to bike back. And um, this is fascinating. It's overwhelming, I guess. The amount of what's sad to me is the amount of conflict in the in the world at any given moment. Like we're yeah. sitting here right now. The amount of people that are being I hate to be dark being killed at this very moment is uh, you know atrocious. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, and it's, it's like awful. no matter what, and you can't really you know process all that. Right? They talk about that in psychology that it's. People mourn over the death of one person sometimes more than they mourn the death of over a hundred people because they can't fathom the the tragedy of that. And for me, it's still yeah, I'm a hippie at heart, and, and I'm maybe a little naive, but it it does it all feels crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, all combat and all fights feel like it feels crazy. And being here, where people have this existential threat or perceived or not perceived depends who you talk to and dealing with people, and it's overwhelming. So it's it boggles the mind. But please keep doing the good work. And you are doing amazing work. And I'm hopefully going to include some, some clips that I can intercut so people can kind of see you in action. And I know you have a TED Talk that's coming out. Yeah. Um, so look out for that TED Talk, Itai, I-T-A-I. Yeah. And it's not angel like with the wings. It's A-N-G-H-E-L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On hill, like I said, but whatever. But uh, please get Itai be an inspiration to you to face your fears and, you know, and uh, I don't want to say grow a pair because a lot of women I know don't have a pair and they're braver than most men I know. But go out there and, and follow your passion and get first-hand accounts and, and, and check all sides. Don't just believe one thing you're, you're listening to or reading. You know what I mean? Do the research. Stay away from fake news except when it's coming out of my beautiful mouth. I love you all. This is Raylan Castor-White signing off. Thank you so much. <laughs>